Saying low, Apple Music. It was in the mid-90s and Ben Harper was playing New Zealand. He was touring off the back of his second album called Fight For Your Mind. And I had a chance to interview him early on in my journey through conversation. And yeah, I mean, the guy just had the whole thing. He was smart, wise, conscious, well-spoken, very striking and charismatic. And, you know, I, like many other people, just kind of fell under his spell. Someone else who was having a very similar experience in the United States was a surfer and surf movie maker called Jack Johnson. He was also an aspiring musician in between surfing, picking up his guitar and penning some demos. He created a tape and it started to sort of spread. And eventually it was handed to Ben Harper. Well, I won't tell you the whole story because it's about to come out, but it got to Ben Harper and Jack Johnson's life would never be the same. A strong friendship was formed that ultimately led to a very important cosign allowing Jack Johnson to forge his own musical career selling millions of records and we find ourselves right here on the interview series at an important milestone 20 years on from the debut of Brushfire Fairy Tales I found myself in a three-way conversation with Jack Johnson and Ben Harper that focuses more than anything on the friendship that is formed and the joy that both of these brilliant human beings get out of that you're going to get joy out of it too enjoy this my conversation with Ben Harper and Jack Johnson on the interview series Look at these two gents in front of me right here. The song that kind of brought them all together in the first place. This is a real friendship in front of me right here. This is the kind of friendship that goes and has all kinds of experiences and all kinds of crazy places and centers around your passions. Ben Harper, it's wonderful to see you. Jack Johnson, my guy, how are you guys? How are you? Great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for taking some time. We celebrate an anniversary of a, of a debut album, which kind of altered the whole trajectory of your life, Jack, but didn't change it. Didn't change who you were, just changed the direction a little bit. I'm excited to dive into this and dive into your relationship because I know you guys are close and have given us such great music. But first of all, Jack, you know, when you think about that album now, 20 years on, not 10 years on from the remaster and, you know, getting the tapes back and the masters back, but actually getting a chance to, to live with it for 20 years. What immediately springs to mind, bro? The friendship right here. And I'm not just saying that because he's here. That's the reason I called Ben up and said, hey, can we, um, can we do this together? Because, you know, it's not me trying to act humble or anything. Ben, you can just claim it. It's like <laughs> the, reason, the reason I have a record and the reason I get to do all this was Ben embracing me like an older brother and bringing me out on the road and playing on the record. And it was like such an exciting time to be making an album. I had all these little four tracks, you know, and um, little demos and Ben had heard those. And anyways, yeah, I mean, that's the reason we're both on this call right now is the friendship's the first thing that pops into mind. And, and it was, it was me being like such a huge fan. And then also, you know, then all of a sudden this friendship beginning and, uh, and it kind of all sprouted from there. And that's what I feel like I learned the most over all the years from Ben is, Music is about collaboration, not competition, you know, and as soon as you embrace that collaboration and the musical friendships that can come out of it, that's, that's why we're able to talk about it 20 years later, I think. Absolutely. That's the spirituality of it all is the human connection. You know, Ben, I feel that you had been, you've been achieving that from day one. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to see you live you know, on the Five for Your Mind tour. I met you a couple of times back then. Yeah. I interviewed you a few times in my early days and, and you were very kind to me also. And, you know, you you actually gave me some really important conversations at a moment when I was trying to make a name for myself. So on a much, much smaller scale, you know, I recognize what Jack is saying that you've always had this very kind of open, very collaborative, very warm spirit about you, bro. 
Yeah, it's been the most important component to growing as a musician is collaboration and keeping my ears open for, for great art and artists. So why would you have possibly cared about Jack then if that's what you were looking for? <laughs> uh, he's an assassin. <laughs> Even before I had heard Jack's demo, first demo tape, which I still have, uh, and only play it for the most close, private, and coveted of friends and company. You know, I, G. Love and I go way back. And G had G and I crossed paths. He said, "Man, have you heard this cat, Jack Johnson? Jack Johnson said, uh, you know, I said, uh, no, I haven't heard him yet.' He said, "Oh man, keep your eye, keep your ears peeled for him." I said, okay, okay. And then a, a mutual friend of Jack and I's handed me his original demo, and I just flipped for it. That was it. I said, and G's got <laughs> such great ears. I knew. You know, G, G Love knows music. He knows the blues. He knows soul music. So when G Pat, when G gave me that word, and then I, I got a hold of that demo, uh, it, it felt like um, it felt like G Love and I's community had just expanded by one. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to look at it too, because there were very few artists of of your age group that were diving into the kind of inspirations and the instant vintage kind of songwriting that, that, that inspired you to make modern records. It was very few. You talk about G-Love, you talk about yourself. There were very few artists around, so it must have felt like, wow, we've got another one here. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was, <laughs> it's, it was huge. It's true. Zane, how, how, uh, how old would you have been? And were you in Aotearoa at the time when you first met Ben? Yeah, correct. So I was, I mean, gosh, I would have been maybe 22 years old. And I remember when yeah. Ben came down and played at a small, well, it's actually a huge venue for Auckland back then, but it's, it's about 1,200, 1,500 capacity. We didn't even have an arena back then called the Power Station. Power Station. I'll yeah. never forget yeah. it, man. And we spoke the day of the show. You came on my show and, 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 I, and you were so charismatic and warm and gentle. And I could tell how much you cared about New Zealand. Like you immediately had a connection. It was a very, very special show. I, I Dude, you were wearing black Converse, black Adidas tracksuit pants, and a white T-shirt. I remember what you were wearing, bro. It was the most epic show ever. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed but the Argyle sweater. I still have on the, <laughs> the Dickies that, and the T-shirts. The reason I ask is because it sounds like we were, you know, pretty similar. It was I was in college when I first heard Ben's music. He was a couple years older and than us, and it was like right around when I was. 22 as well maybe and then um i remember hearing it and it's kind of like you said it's it's there's it's so crazy i was talking to my son last night about music it's hard to keep up with how many amazing bands and music there are now like there's there's so much great production out there and you kind of sometimes have to sit with a record for a while because so many of them sound great and then they either the lyrics and the and the themes stick with you or they don't but going back i mean to put people listening especially younger people now the way it felt, like when I first heard Ben's music, there was nothing like it. It was it blew my mind because it was um, it was a combination of all these things I love, but it wasn't retro. It was like it was hip hop. To me, it was hip hop. Yeah. Like as soon as oppression kicks in and all of that percussion, yeah. that earthiness is so loud. But I'm not listening exactly. to it like a folk song. I'm listening to it like I'm listening to a tribe record. Like it was the craziest thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a combination of all those things, and it was just like when I first heard it. It was like all of a sudden I knew what I wanted to sound like. You know what I mean? It's like this is this is the blueprint for me. This is finally something where all these influences of older musicians I have. This is how you make it contemporary, and this is how you do it. And it was in G Love in the same conversation. It was great. You know, it was like it was a small crew of musicians that I heard that I thought I loved all kinds of music at the time. But when I heard especially those two bands and, and Ben, especially it was like, oh, okay, this is something I could actually kind of shoot for right here. You know, this is, 
this is what I'm aiming for. Yeah, as a filmmaker as well, and somebody who's who's immersed in your passion at the time, not that you weren't playing an instrument or writing songs, the demos were, were coming into existence, but you were focusing on making you know films and surfing. Music plays such an essential role. I remember growing up watching all my favorite surf films, and in particular, really more focused on skateboarding videos. And and we would discover music through those. That's how we would discover music. Yeah. We'd be like, "What the hell is that?" You know, "Oh, that's Lord Finesse, the Funky Technician." Oh. Sh- I need to get that record, right? <laughs> like, and so you'd have all these like incredible skate sequences and how you chose the music was essential. And obviously being a music fan, Jack, you know, you got a chance to do that. And before we get into the ultimate meeting, which came through that, that lens, what was it like kind of going through and picking music for your films and, and working with music in a different way from a curatorial way, you know? Yeah, that was an exciting process for me because I'd grown up on surf films. I'd seen a few skate films, but really over here in Hawaii, it was mostly, mostly surfing and that we were watching and a lot of Jack McCoy's early films and all of, through his whole career. They had a really eclectic mix of music that I was digging on. I got a lot out of that TSOL and Huda Guru and Agent Orange and a lot of great bands. And then during the nineties, there was a lot of good music, but it got real, you know, focused on, on like Southern California kind of punk music and. I was in, I was into a lot of that stuff and I was into older punk stuff and, and I was into some of these newer bands. But I also felt by the time I started making the films, I wanted to bring a different kind of angle to it. I was shooting everything on 16 millimeter for one thing. So the film was the, the visual quality was different and I wanted to create a more eclectic soundtrack kind of back to those Jack McCoy films I'd grown up on. And, um, so then, you know, reaching out to people like Ben and just finding stuff that we'd never heard in surf movies before and, and making sure. And then, you know, also filling in the blanks with our own music. And that was, that was an exciting part was kind of doing, it was just a four track machine with the tape, the cassette tape and myself with a microphone, but I'd watch the footage and I would play along to it. And then you could, you could watch it back and then you could change the image a little bit to line up better with the music and you'd kind of go back and forth. And then I, I had Adam Topo, who's the drummer in my band. He would come in with me and he'd hit the splash symbols on the right part, right? When somebody was doing an off the lip or something. And We'd try to line those things up. So it was just our little budget version of trying to score the films. That was really exciting process for me. I mean, you know, you, you inevitably lean into your favorite artists. And so then you have to kind of reach out to Ben and say, hey, you know, like I've made this film. Would you like, would you let me use your music in the film and such? And, and I don't know if you knew at the time that Ben, you were, you were growing an interest in surfing, right? This is something that was already a passion or an interest of yours as well as music. Well, I haven't grown, grown up closer to the desert than the ocean. I grew up skateboarding. So it it so Jack and Emmett and his crew gave me my first surf lessons. Wow, that's crazy! That's crazy. Yeah. And um, was it as instant as they say it is? <laughs> was it like is it as immediate as they say it is? Skateboarding helped. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a direct parallel, but it definitely helped stabilize the you know the core strength. But the addiction, I mean, no, it's hard to do. But I mean, the addiction, the desire to surf above all else, once you oh, realize, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it's. Yeah. Hard to do, impossible to stop. <laughs> Beautifully put. So, Jack, how do you find yourself in a studio in Los Angeles, the one and only time, I think, outside of Hawaii that you ended up recording on a mainland somewhere else? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, that was I, that was exciting. I mean, L.A. has always been really fun for me, you know, it's um, because it was so different than where I grew up. And then I went to school in Santa Barbara, and that was a nice place and a little slower pace than LA. So whenever I drive into LA, especially when I started doing the first club gigs at the Mint and the Viper Room and those kind of places, just driving in was always so exciting. I remember thinking like, I wonder if people are going to show up to the show. And when I got 
enough people starting to come to the shows and we, you know, kind of gathered the songs and uh, JP Plunier, who is uh, helping Ben produce his first records, produced my first record. And um, that was, it was cool. It was like, I didn't know what it, I'd never been in a recording studio, but when I first went in there. And so besides the experience with G Love, we did Rodeo Clowns. I was in there for a couple of days. So we did the whole record, I think in seven days, six or seven days, we recorded the whole thing. We did two songs a day and um, just busted it out. And it was, I loved it. I loved going out and getting burritos for lunch and, you know, just grabbing a cup of coffee and getting back in there. And it was, that's kind of where I started drinking coffee was once I started making records. I think, you know? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I started drinking coffee when I became a dad, like properly. And I was like, I can't believe I ever survived without this thing. <laughs> That's when I went daily. It's funny. I always tell my daughter, I was like, you're the reason I drink coffee every morning. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Ben, if I take a look at the timeline, I mean, by this point, you you know, your family established and your audience is growing. You know, I think you're in between albums four and five at this point uh, when Jack is making Brush Five Fairy Tales. You know, where is your career at at this moment in time? All those those tours and that hard work. You know, where are you at at this moment in your life? At that point, it was great timing because it was hot off the press for me and jumping pretty much around the world. So... I was able to, you know, plug in with Jack as far as the touring went. And that's just the timing couldn't have been better for us to, to align forces. Yeah. Those, that early tour, that first tour, you know, when you're taking Jack and his, and his small crew out on the road. Yeah. And the fun mover. Yeah. (laughs) Good memory. Well, you got to fill me in on that. Like that's a. (laughs) I'll say, I I just thought of a funny story. So I'm not, Ben, I promise not to do this. I know it's awkward to have to sit there and me keep saying what a big fan was. Oh, no. Keep no, going. It's cool. <laughs> oh, well, hang on. And by the way, <laughs> I can take some. I can take some of that pressure off your shoulders, Jack. If you want, we yeah. can just tag right, team good. between idol worship of Ben here. If it just makes it any easier on you and double and double worse for Ben. <laughs> I'm the I'm the old man in the room. It's cool. I, the reason I want to do it is because uh, it, it no, it serves a point in this one. It was so to give you an example. The first time my wife and I, she she was my girlfriend back then, Kim, um, who's. She was, she's my manager now. She's been my partner through this whole thing and um, this whole life. And so we met, we were 18 years old. The first Ben show we saw was, it was called The Hub. It's like the little spot at the, um, the, the like right outside the dining commons kind of thing at the university where we were going to school at UCSB. And I was such a big, at that point only, uh, Welcome to the Cruel World and Fight for Your Mind were out. And I knew every word of every song to the point where Kim at one point wow, had to wow, be... Wow. She, we were watching the show and I remember at one point Kim was like, she had to shush me. She was like, Hey, you're kind of being one of those guys right now. You're, Cause I was like starting to sing every word, like trying, you know, those guys like in the front row, like trying to get your attention that they know every word. I was, I was like that guy. She was kind of like, Hey, take it easy. Like shh, calm down a little bit. And then, but here's my point is <laughs> I saw you several times Marry after her. that. Totally. I was just about to say, man, that sounds very familiar to me that, that, <laughs> she stuck with me she stuck with me we saw and then we saw you at the uh, extravaganza which is out on the field of the campus we saw you at the santa barbara bowl these are all times before we'd met and i think when i was watching you the thing that was kind of cool was ben would mostly if you saw him back in the old days he would mostly sit and yeah. in place like he's playing so much slide you know yeah. and i remember thinking like this is cool this guy's just sitting down and like you don't have to jump around or do anything too crazy and i started thinking like i could do so I used to always sit when I'd play every gig, I would sit. And then when Ben first invited me on tour, I was like, oh, I got to now learn how to stand up because I can't just open for Ben sitting the whole time. Then he, I'm like taking his gig. So then I stand up and sure <laughs> enough, when, when Burn to Shine came out, there was a lot more electric guitar and, and like 
So all of a sudden I get on tour and the first show I look and Ben's standing up finally. And I'm like, oh man, all that work to learn to stand up. I should have just kept sitting down because <laughs> you were standing up for a lot of the show. What you're listening to, what, you, what you're seeing right now, people, is the, <laughs> is the dynamic between fan and artist when it meets in the beautiful crossroads where there's a, where there's a commonality, which is, which is the music. That was always the commonality. But at some point, Jack, you had to let it go, right? I mean, you have to become a peer at some point. Ben, what, were you going to add something there? There wasn't one show where the band, the Innocent Criminals and I didn't didn't see the to see Jack open for us. We were always side stage. We never missed a Jack show. It was it was reciprocated instantly. That's it's incredible. true. The whole ba- we felt we felt yeah. so welcome by the whole band. It's I would look over and see them all the time on the side and like oh yeah, not oh, just yeah. Ben but like the whole band Juan yeah. Yeah. and all of them. They were all so supportive. Um, Oliver and yeah. we knew how unique just, it was. We knew what we were hearing. We it was cool. So after. We had the little van, you know, it was our first tour ever. So of course we should be in the, in the van. I always look back and, and when people ask about like the early days, we got hooked up so quick because so we're on, we're out in the van and uh, we have our drum set in the back and the bass and the guitar and the amps. It's all crammed in there. And the first show or two, that's how we were doing it. And then sure enough, we got to know their crew and everybody on their, on their touring crew was so cool too. All the sound guys and monitor engineers. So then they started going like, hey, there's extra room. Just throw it in the back of the truck. And they started helping us load. And so pretty soon, you know, it was like we felt like we they were just treating us like the headliners. And the, and everybody was always invite. If, if it was a funky backstage situation, they were the first ones to be like, hey, jump on the tour bus. Come hang on up here, you know. And I, just, like, I mean, I never understood that dynamic of like a headliner goes out on the road and picks a band or an artist. And then it just gives them a dick pass. Like you just get to be a dick to somebody. And I just <laughs> never understand that dynamic. Why would you make it uncomfortable and awkward for yourself just to serve the purpose of your ego? That is so short-lived and bizarre. Yeah. Why would you not create an environment of camaraderie and of unity? It's crazy to me. I never got it. And I've heard horror story after horror story. Yeah. I've heard about him. I never got to experience it because we toured with Ben that whole first tour, you know, and it was... Uh he kind of like, yeah, he set the example on, on what it means to be a host and and how it was. And so, yeah, we definitely have tried to live up to that and always treat the opening bands the same way those guys treated us on the first tour. But I got, this is the, uh, I remembered I had that. This is the burn to shine. That's uh, unbelievable. Right here. That's incredible. OG tour short. Wait, 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 hang on. Before you start giving him any compliments, come a bit closer. That's a bootleg, bro. Yeah. That's dark. I can't believe you no, flashed no. a bootleg. <laughs> 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 that's the real deal. Evil Vince, evil evil Vince designed that baby right yes. there. Oh, I was gonna say he he mentioned the fun mover earlier. That wasn't until the uh, was that the second tour we did together, maybe or was maybe whatever it was. It was. At some point, we we got in the fun mover, which is like uh kind of like one of those. They're designed for the desert. If you want to take all your like motorcycles out to the desert, it's got a lift gate on it, but it's basically a camper van, and it has one bed above the driver's seat. And our band was in that for a little while, the Fun Mover. That was our first upgrade. And uh, Michael Pollock, sound guy, Ben's sound guy, and he's done sound for me for years too. Um, he helped Great us. Like, we got a bunch of two by fours and we like rigged it all up so that it had kind of these bays for all our instruments in the back and everything. And that was a fun first step before the tour bus, you know, made you really appreciate the tour bus once you got it, having the Fun Mover for a while. The Fun Mover would have been perfectly played. You wouldn't have been surprised if you saw like a washing machine out in front of it. <laughs> and like a car on blocks with its hood up. It was wild. It was, yeah. it was thing. I never it seen said, any band do that, really. <laughs> it, said, <laughs> it said Fun Mover on the side. You actually had it on the side? You actually had it, it on the side? It said Fun Mover, yeah. <laughs> And that was, um, 
uh, that was a result of my wife, Kim, being my manager, you know, like she was kind of just like, oh, I got this good idea. Like you could, this is a little bit like looking at the budget, you know, <laughs> no, she, she's looking at the budget. She's, she's like, I want you to bring something home from all of this traveling. She didn't let us, she didn't let us get a tour bus for like a kind of like an abnormal long period of time. We kind of stuck with the fun mover for a while. <laughs> You've heard of like, in, you, you know, in between dreams. Yeah. That was like in between tours. <laughs> <laughs> that was... <laughs> <laughs> you so should have been on the tour bus after your debut album. I love the fact that your wife is just holding the line. She's like, oh, the fun mover is amazing. Look how nimble it is. You can park it. Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to park a tour bus? Forget the, who oh, wants yeah. a tour bus? Yeah. People talk about the, the good times of vans though. You know, it's, it's funny if, if you stick around and, you, and you're lucky enough to be around long enough, you know, you eventually get to a point where, you know, as, as, as comfortable as it is to, to, to travel and tour with, with all the mod cons that, you, you come full circle and you remember those times or what it was like to, to do those early shows. I mean, you know, you know, Ben, you know, what, what are some of your favorite recollections when you were first starting out and, you know, th there wasn't all the opportunity to go ahead and make it as comfy as possible. I was just over, so overwhelmed by the prospect of having the, the chance to, to play music around, you know, to be able to go from city to city, town to town and make music at that level. I just, I, it still hasn't worn off. Yeah. But when you're when you're 23, you're you're just pinching yourself. Yeah, I got a, I got a question for you, Ben. What was it like um, early days? Because I know you get to a point where if you're playing kind of consistent size venues, like you know doing a theater tour or an amphitheater tour, you kind of know what you're walking into, and you have subtle differences where uh, that shed is a little more boomy or it's got some slap back from the you know the back seats or something, and sure. you deal with those little things, and you got a pro audio guy at that point that helps you deal with it. You walk in, you, you know, you've got a good team that's kind of looking out for you and all that stuff. But what was it like on the early days? Cause you know, for me, I was playing an acoustic guitar and we were pretty quiet. I just know from watching you a couple of my favorite moments. Um, I remember seeing it fourth and B in San Diego one time. Oh, that was a fun show. In the hub, like right I mentioned on. in these smaller venues, they have different shapes to them. Sure. And you were, you were controlling a lot of noise. Like, and that was what I loved was this controlled feedback. And sometimes out of control okay. feedback, yeah. you know, I'd love yeah. it when it would get, yeah. but it was that, um, that hollow body slide instrument you're playing and yeah. then trying to control the feedback. What was that like on the early days? Yeah, it, that was out of control and kind of just breaking, breaking new ground because there was, there wasn't anything to kind of base it off of. So I was learning as I went show, show by show. With the slide though, because obviously with your new album, Congratulations, which is another beautiful piece of, you know, body of work, you know, it's been something Thank that you've you, remained Zane. loyal to and, and just continue yeah. to breathe life into and put in front of us. But you said you sort of were making it up as you were going along. Like, like what was it like when you started sort of, you know, getting that out and playing it in front of young crowds, skater kids, people like myself who were listening to rat records. I'd never seen anybody look like you know at your age get on stage looking dressed the way you did playing the slide guitar i mean it was a bonkers time it was crazy it was nuts the first time we opened up for pearl jam was in san jose stadium 1995 and we walked out the four of us and i think we le we leaned into like Jimi hendrix voodoo child straight out the gate and, and at, the, at the end of the song i just we finished and i just to see thirty thousand people just kind of going you know, what was that? You know, like really, it was, it was wildly cool and oh, fun. Good. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, could, I, I could tell you an experience from, uh, from being one of the first nights of tour. I remember going back to a hotel. We just met Evil Vince and all these guys that were, you know, on the crew. And 
that was the cool thing is those guys were on a tour with music that they couldn't believe they were going to hear. He, I remember Evil Vince going, check this out. This is Chicago last year. And he put on Voodoo Child. And it was a uh, like a, a live performance of you guys doing it. But it was after a whole night of hearing you guys played. I was at a at a hotel after party with the crew. And they were, they were putting on that music, you know. It was that cool. And it was... Uh, That's really wild. But the thing was, like, that was... I remember, too, you were talking about the combination of, like, folk and hip-hop and all these things coming together. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw you play and doing this thing where you're, like, doing air scratching over the guitar. I remember. And it sounded like somebody doing, you know, like... DJing a record and it was like wow that's amazing it was uh that controlled feedback again because you would find these moments where it was like as a as a music fan this is what I perceived at least is you'd get these moments where it was just about to be too much and you would ride that and you could do things where you would just you would just lean into those moments and I love that that was some of my favorite moments of the shows and like you said Jack thank you so much for and and certain nights in certain rooms depending on how they were uh, constructed it would be out of control. You know, you'd have to, you, you're making it, I was, I was kind of making it up as I went along, just trying to reach for a sound. Like we're all reaching for, you know, we reach mm-hmm. for the, that kind of unknown, the, you know, the most rare and unknown uh, melody that's inside of each one of us. And that's at that time, just, just trying to, trying to do that. But sometimes, some nights, man, I'd I'd have that, acoustic hollow neck Weisenborn running through a Marshall or something. And it would just, it would, it would, uh, it would get the better of me. <laughs> it, it was fun to, to, to wrestle it though, especially before I knew, you know, cause once you know how to do it and, and what it takes to do it, it sounds different than when you're actually on the exploration. Yeah. yeah. This is so special for me, Jack. I'm so glad that you were able to convince Ben to share this moment because as, as we, we established early in the conversation, being from New Zealand, and and it's a country that that you know it has embraced both of you very very quickly. You know, yeah. Jack. You know, you had I think your first number one album with Brushfire Fairy Tales in New Zealand. It was, yeah, that was it. Yeah, and Ben, obviously, you know, you could have come and you could have come down there and stayed. I mean, we would have you would have gotten a we would, someone would have bought a passport to the power station for you, like just sign it. You were so loved and still so loved down there. So I, I, it's rare I get a chance to to ask this kind of question because I live in, I've lived in all over the world now, you know, and, and I'm, and home is still home to me though. You know, what, what your sort of those, your interpretation or your impressions of New Zealand were at those really formative years, you know, starting with you being those early shows you would play on the first two albums, you'd come down there and play shows and, and play a couple of thousand people. Yeah. I just said, this is the most beautiful and incredible place I've ever been in my entire life. Yeah. Jack, what about you? You know, I remember having this thought the first time I played in New Zealand, I was, I felt a little bit like um, some places I'd go, it would be the music I was playing and maybe the way I was dressed, which was just kind of how I grew up, you know, wearing a, if it was cold, I'd have a pair of jeans on. But one thing I kind of learned is that once you're in the venue, even if it's snowing outside, it's usually warm enough that you don't need shoes. And so like, I know it became a little bit, I got like ridiculed on Saturday Night Live, a bunch of stuff for like never wearing <laughs> shoes. I would always have a pair of slippers on. Don't get me wrong. I never go, but uh when I showed up, like, so some places I'd feel a little bit like, oh, this probably seems like an act or something to people. It was so nice when I first went to Aotearoa and the first time I kind of saw the way people were reacting to music. Growing up in Hawaii, reggae music was just the biggest thing growing up. Like, I remember in the 80s, you know, it was like Gregory Isaac's uh, Night Nurse record. That was like, for two years, that was like all you'd hear. And it was huge. And it was like, so like those little influences <clears throat> of like heavier bass in the songs, and it wasn't like we were doing straight reggae, but we had a lot of like 
reggae beats Adam was doing or like the, the bass lines and kind of that strip back acoustic Nicopila kind of style of just sitting around and mm-hmm. making live music together. Um, it felt really natural in Aotearoa. And it was like, the I remember thinking like, wow, this makes a lot of sense here. I, it, the, I kind of could understand where if anywhere it was going to work, that was the spot. And then sure enough, like you said, it was the first place our record went number one or we had something. Yes, it was like a number one something. And it was uh, really exciting for us. I remember just being so anxious to get back down there. And I can tell you every time we tour, the last few times we've ended there. And um, it's something the band always looks forward to. I think we can like really lay into songs. And if there's certain songs that live, we stretch out, we just stretch them out a little further there. And it's like, get the, we get to have this dub, this kind of delay pedal I've been using more live. That's basically like a tape echo that you can like kick on or off. And it's like, definitely lay into that baby a little more down in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, I just remember, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was down there, you know, it was, and you're right about the reggae and the dub and dance hall influence that really permeates down in, you know, in, in New Zealand as well. And, and I just remember that, that, you know, that it was Ben and it was Michael Franti were just like, we would just flip between like whoever was coming down, everyone would just like either race to the Ben Harper show or race to the Michael Franti show because the Spearhead show, because the same thing, it, there was message to it as well. And that was something that was always, that remains very important to what you do, Ben. And, and I'm sure it really drew you into the world. Like it did me, Jack, was, was what you were saying, Ben, that you weren't just leaning into this musical landscape, but you were really trying to broaden people's minds and you were talking about injustice and you were covering really, you know, topics which are getting louder and louder and louder by the day. You know, when you first made those records and just before you sort of met Jack, you know, what was it like kind of writing those songs and recognizing that in many respects, as a young man making music, you were probably a little bit out of step with everything else that was going on. You were you were tr- searching for something deeper. Yeah, that's where I have to give a nod to Jack and I's comrade, uh, J.P. Plunier. I mean, he has a fearlessness and had a fearlessness when he and I, JP and I were coming up together. To that point, I mean, now it's commonplace, right? Where you can put a, you know, drum loop behind slide guitar or, you know, a hip hop. You can put a hip hop perspective onto a sort of folk template and have it turn into something good and groovy. At the time, that, that hadn't happened yet. You know, I mean, the, 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 the cross section of hip hop and folk music. There were samples, of course, obviously, but it hadn't sort of happened in its own genre and in its own sort of incubator. It just, it just hadn't happened. So JP was fearless enough to, you know, go on to not only forge uh, a new path in doing so, create its own genre, uh, seems to have created a genre. I mean, JP, JP was just brave and fearless and knew that we could create something that possibly hadn't been done yet. And he was more than willing and excited to put hip hop and folk music together to see what would happen if, if for nothing else for he and I to listen to. Hey Jack, your message is deeply rooted in the idea of finding some kind of inner peace I've always found. And even in some of the songs that are more personal, you know, the unrequited songs, the songs about love coming, coming and going, there's ultimately a search for something that's um, deeper than the anxiety that normally is associated with that. The space in between is sort of the best way I would describe mm-hmm. it. Can you us, just talk us through your process, and, and in particular with Brushfire Fairy Tales, how you got to that place where you were able to kind of get, get an authentic message in your music, you know? Oh, okay, sure. before I, can I, could, can I speak to that just for 30 seconds? Hell yeah. Yeah. All right, because it's important for me to say, like when I heard Jack's music, the first thing that just drew me all the way in, especially on the demos and on Brushfire, it was as hard hitting as hip hop or even metal, 
but it left room for me to incorporate my own life in between the sonic space. And I was completely blown away by that. I mean, it hit like it was, it, it reminded me so much of Bill Withers. And I, I'm always surprised <laughs> where Jack doesn't get more Bill Withers <laughs> comparisons. That That's the nicest compliment I ever got. I love Bill Withers. And, uh, P, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, um, I want to not forget to take the chance to really, uh, give JP a, a huge shout out for me too. I think I want to echo what Ben said for JP for me was, you know, cause at that time, Ben and I would cross paths a little bit. And when he first played on the record, I barely knew Ben still. I mean, I'd met him a few times and, and he really was, I think, coming in out of a trust in JP as much as me, you know, like this is something JP was helping to, to produce. And, it, and JP would always kind of have these ways of making me feel almost ridiculous for asking certain questions. But when I look back, it was really helpful. Just meaning anytime I would question like, oh, what am I supposed to wear on stage? I was so new to it all. You know, he'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, you're you just get up there and wear whatever you, you know, like he, I was kind of like, am I supposed to wear a button up shirt or like get more dressed up for this? But he would just, he would just always want me to be as much me as possible. And he would always encourage and give you confidence in what you'd already done. Like at that point, you know, I had these demos that I didn't have a whole lot of confidence. I shared them with a few friends and they kind of started spreading, but i I mean, like anybody, when they probably hear their early demos, it's hard for me to listen to them. They're very embarrassing to hear. And it's like, to me, I still like, I hear them and they sound like a exercise and and rhyming and just getting my, you know, just getting it together. And, um, but JP would give you confidence to like get those songs all the way out. Let's do this, get in the studio. And so anyways, I really appreciate how much confidence and like how much he backed me up in uh, my music early on. And, and so, but with the songwriting question, I think for me, Songs have always kind of been a question and I don't always answer them. Sometimes I got more questions after I write the song. Sometimes I feel like I've answered something and I didn't used to think it as much as I do now after, you know, being at this point in my life, but the songs really do help me. I think it's the way my mind works. Any little thing I hear in the day, I kind of put into a rhyme in my mind. It's sometimes just to remember I got to call somebody back or it's like some little thing. Me and my kids joke around about it now because they're all, teenagers and love playing music and we just joke about these dumb little rhymes that dad makes up and and so anyways like some of them stick around and a couple days later it's like oh that's actually something then it's kind of a question of why is that staying in my mind like Mm. why is that phrase still there and is there something there and i start to kind of follow it and then other times it's processing the loss of somebody you love and it does it's almost a meditation sometimes i put them out sometimes i don't but the process always kind of helps me get through those hard times. And then other songs are just dumb little jokes to make my wife laugh. And those end up being the most popular songs I ever write. Banana Pancakes, Bubble Toes, all these songs that I literally, five minutes to write them because they're just sappy little funny things to literally, just to make her laugh. And then usually people are like, oh, I like that one. What's that? You know, it's like, that's the one they keep asking about. And so I put them on the records, but uh, they're, they're fun too. But there's those types, you know, and then there's the ones that I, I'd write for months and they end up being the deep cuts nobody listens to. <laughs> hey Ben, I mean, are this are, are there songs that you've that, that, are there a lot of songs that you've written just for your own personal process in order to exercise some kind of emotional thought, but you don't necessarily feel the need to share it and release it? All of them. Yes, I feel about every single song. I, you still release them, but they've they've always been to serve my own outlet. Mm-hmm. But are there ones that you haven't released that you have held on to and gone, I don't need to share that? I got one of them right now. Come on. <laughs> He just you just sent he just sent me a new song that hasn't been released. Oh, that's yet. well, yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, but that's the work in progress. That might come out. 
I'll rephrase my question with an example. When I spoke to Dolly Parton one time and I said to her, you know, like what happened, how do you write? She says, sometimes I just walk past a guitar and I strum it with my hand and then I hear something in my head and I sit down, I write it, but I don't always release it. Sometimes I just finish it and I park it and I move on. And there's a difference between writing something for me that I feel helps me to express something I can't find inside and necessarily putting something out through the machine of a record and everything else. That's, that's kind of what's her a yin and yang. No, it makes perfect sense. And if there's, I, I definitely have an archive of unreleased material, but it's not released because it's for me. It's released either because it wasn't up to par or, or it didn't fit the body of work once it was taking shape. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to struggle to find a more sort of odd combination of individuals on an, a legendary show. <laughs> I had to dive deep to find this one out. Then Toots and the Maytals, Jack Johnson, Ben Harper on Saturday Night Live <laughs> hosted by Donald Trump. <laughs> Whoa. I've, so, wow, that, that last bit threw me off. I forgot that Donald Trump hosted that. <laughs> Donald Trump hosted that show. I got a picture. I got a picture of me giving Donald Trump bunny ears. How heavy is that? Ben, have I ever sent you that picture? I was there. I remember it. I got a picture of me. I was like, no, he's not. Well, it was that end of the night. Everybody's hugging each other, waving. That happens on SNL. Good night. Everybody's like talking. It's good to see you. And, And, you know, this is years before he's ever going to be president or anything. And I just, I think. One of the guys from the Roots might have done it first, and I thought that's a good idea because all my friends at home are going to see. I just gave Donald Trump bunny ears, so I went for it, and I got a I got a still frame that I got off the internet. I found it, but uh, <laughs> but let's not focus on that. The toots part, come on. The toots part. I had to give. I had to drop it in there just quickly because it is like something strange was stirring in the universe that evening to draw like some of the most like wise and open and just informed human beings into a room with that guy. (laughs) But yeah, but getting to perform with toots and also just, and I, and I, and the reason again, I brought it up was because, you know, you, if you look back on it and I was doing a bit of deep research into your relationship, not just as a fan of both of you, but actually what you guys have shared, the time you've shared so many incredible experiences over the years, not just on record, but in life. Right. Yeah. That's right. a good point. I'll let you start, Ben, because, you know, I've, I got to spend a little time with Toots, but I think Ben maybe got more, more time to spend with him. Yeah, spent a good amount of time with Toots over the years. But I mean, that SNL, uh, remember, Jack, what do you do right before, right before cameras are rolling? And ladies and gentlemen, what did Toots do? <laughs> so he, Wait, I got to back up. So the way SNL works is like you show up a couple days early and, um, and you do a, a dress rehearsal. And you get to run the show several times. And then also, since we never all played together, we came a day earlier and we spent a whole day in the studio running one song, Pressure Drop, which was amazing. And like every time they'd, they'd be like, wow, do you mind running it again? I mean, for myself, and I think Ben felt the same. It's like, no problem. Let's do it again. Like as many times as you could. And Toots was so funny because I think he wanted to do it once and he was ready to you know go do something else. But th- that what happened was they kept timing it and they would go, okay. So that time it was four minutes and 30 seconds, but the time before was about three minutes and 20 seconds. We don't care how long it is, but we need it to be the same. So which one is it going to be? And he'd be like, just like that, just like the one I did. And then they go, can you just do it one more time? And then this time it'd be like five minutes and every time was different. But either way, like we ran the song so many times and then we did it at a rehearsal. And then all of a sudden it's coming back from the commercial, the real time, here it comes. And they're like, 10, nine, he comes over to me and he goes, Jack, Jack. 
what song are we playing? And I look at his eyes. He's, he's dead serious. He's looking at me and he's like, what song are we playing? And then I looked at him. I was like, pressure drop. And he's like, good. It, one, two, three, four. And he counts it off and goes. And I was looking at Jack. I had my eyes on Jack. And I see Jack kind of go pale a little bit. Like, what? what? And then it's like, boom. That was funny. And there was also, it was just great, like, He's a he's as good of a human as you want him to be. You know, he's yeah. I've got I've opened for him once in Boulder at the Fox Theater too, and got to hang Ooh, out with him backstage. Hot. It was so fun, and we had the same dressing room, and they just put us all in one place. And he was the sweetest guy. Like he was just so giving of his time, and it was like he's exactly the guy you hope he would be. You know, and then yeah. and then backstage at the SNL, we had some funny moments watching him trying to find his toothbrush. I won't go <laughs> too much further. <laughs> No, but didn't the fire marshal show up? Because he wouldn't stop smoking weed, right? <laughs> like he was the first person that ever, that they finally had to just let smoke in 30 Rock. It was a full scandal and nobody yeah. could get him to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and then he started looking, looking everywhere for his toothbrush. He's like, where's my toothbrush? And he started like looking under things that like your toothbrush would never be there. <laughs> he was like moving weird stuff to like see if his toothbrush might be underneath the couch and stuff. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, I was in a radio station once with Josh from Queens of the Stone Age and Mike Lanigan when he was touring with the band, right? Which is a legendary Queens of the Stone Age lineup. And we were we were doing an interview, and this is when they were just like at their most sort of like swaggerish, you know. It was just like they'd walk in the room and everyone would be like, "All right, here they are," you know. And they sat down and they were smoking. We were they were, we were all smoking cigarettes. I used to smoke back then, which was foolish. We were all smoking cigarettes at the time. The fire alarm went off in the Capitol Radio building. You've both been in there. You know what that's like. And it's like everyone's got to leave the building. The whole place has to be evacuated. Everyone has to go. Fire alarm's off. This is the standard. This is the rules. So by this point, we realize the, the extent of what we've, we've created here. We start to feel a bit stupid. And even Josh's rock star swagger is sort of diminishing by the second as he realizes there are people <laughs> in accounting who have to leave this radio station because he was smoking a fucking Marlboro light. And anyway, so we're about to leave. And he turns around to Mark Landigan and he goes, Mark, we have to go. Come on, man. This is like serious. We've kind of fucked up here. And Mark just sits on this flight case and he's, he's smoking. He goes, I choose to die. And he just sat there and finished his, <laughs> and finished his cigarette for about four minutes. And then got it was like, all right, I kind of believe this guy. Yeah. You know, as as you think back to you know back to the start of this sort of relationship, which which you know we've we've covered some beautiful ground in the early days, and and it and it's, it remains obviously so close. Hearing you guys tell stories is just incredible. And you know, you continue to create and live really healthy, wonderful lives. But you know, does, does it ever cross your mind? to kind of, and it's an obvious question to, to solidify collaboration and even deeper and do something that's work on something. It doesn't even have to be a duet record. I mean, to your point, Ben, you just did an album based entirely around slide, you know, but to do something that really kind of gets you guys in a room for a solid amount of time to be able to work on something together and not just a good day, but like a good week or a good couple of weeks. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. All the way in. <laughs> That'd be fun. Give me well, every reason. I mean, I'm just looking for a reason to go to Hawaii anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, work, we're working on a song right now. Well, Ben Ben wrote a beautiful song and he sent it my way. I hope it's okay. I'm telling him, Ben. No, and, thank uh, you. We'll, we'll thank see you. what happens. But I, I love the song. And so uh, maybe this will be the beginning. Who knows? Yeah. But you, you got a whole group. You got a group of songs, Ben, getting ready yeah. to put yeah, on the record. Yeah, I mean, it could it could uh, be the it, like you said, it could be the start of something, or, or it could go on my record. Or you know, I just I just knew that song had a place for for you and I. Yeah. What yeah. mood do we find you in right now without going into too much detail? Cause it's all process Ben, I understand, but, um, you know, what kind of mood do we find you in as a creative right now? What, 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 what kind of space in the headspace are you in? Oh, I'm all, the, I'm, I'm back to the roots. I'm, a, I'm making a record that's I think a, an appropriate next step from the instrumental record, that organic sounds. Uh, yeah, I'm writing a couple of songs. I kind of, um, 
never feel like I'm writing for a record. And then sometimes I, I feel like all of a sudden I realize I have enough to start really thinking about it. And then I start finishing songs. I start a lot of songs. I get a lot of like one verse and one chorus. And then I kind of just get bored of working on that one. And then once I got enough one verse, one choruses, then I kind of, it's almost like writing a paper or something. Then you realize, okay, I got the important parts here. And then now I want to start actually diving in and thinking about these stuff and, and finishing it. And so I'm kind of in the beginning of that process, just by gathering some songs. Um, and, and Jack, do you mind if I ask, because, you know, I, you and I have been in it so long, you know, do songs still find their way through you in a bolt or are you mainly piecemeal? Do you, do, do it, you know, do they still come in full form? Like, thank you. You know, where'd that come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every so often. And by the way, it still happens to me, but sometimes the songs are just terrible. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like oh, that came that, that, that came through me. Oh, you know, it turns yeah. out too. It's like, it takes just as much time to write a bad song as it does a good one. So it's, it's like, you know, you got to, you got to know your, you know, find your way around that minefield. But I was curious, Jack, if they still hit you in a bolt like that. Yeah, sometimes I would say, you know, I got a couple of songs on the last record that, um, the last, yeah, the last record has a song called My Mind is for Sale. And, yeah. um, and that oh, one just kind of came all one morning and I just, yeah. I just let it, it's, it's sometimes the way the lyrics work where the lines kind of run over each other and, and stumble like that, where it's, um, the style of writing. And I just wrote another one I put out recently. I just, it kind of, I guess partly because the song just came so quickly and it, I felt like it was done and I felt like it was sort of a commentary on what the country felt like to me, at least uh, it, it's called the captain is drunk. I just put yeah. that one out like yeah. a month yeah. ago or yeah. two months ago. And uh, so anyways, like, yeah, still sometimes, but I would say mostly I'm, I'm just kind of uh, writing between the moments with the kids. And once the kids are asleep and I get, you know, but I that's find the, like those, the are, moment. those are all the moments you got to experience. And then you, um, like that, that's the inhale. And then the exhale is the songs, you know? Sure. And I want to also go on record saying I was there because Willie got us. <laughs> right. I was in the room. <laughs> yeah, that was. Oh, that's right. That was. Speaking of one of like those great experiences you're talking about, like we uh, after this one show in Maui, I guess it was a Kukua festival, I guess, right? Yeah, it was uh, right. you were you were there. Willie played that year, and then it's I've told this story before, but there's you know the end of the night a big festival, you get a lot of great musicians, and they all got their arms around each other, and like you kind of look to the elder, and when he decides it's time to bow, you bow, kind of thing, or everybody's just waving, whatever that might be. You see it, you kind of want, as a fan, I'm always like, wow, what's going on? What are they saying to each other? You see him whispering stuff. So it's like, we just played this great show. Everybody's waving. And then Willie leans over to me and he goes, want to go to my house and play some poker? And I, and I was like, <laughs> that's, that's what, that's what hope, gets said. That's what you hope is getting said when you're in the crowd. Yeah. Is that it's as cool and so, as that. And I said, hell yeah, let's go. And so we ended up at his house. And that's that's where this song came about. I got a song called Willie Got Me Stone and Took All My Money. And uh, yeah, Ben was there. It was a wild night. A lot of funny. We, we, we talk about it all the time. Like, <laughs> A lot of times it's the same stuff, like remember this or that. But every once in a while, like something new will come. Like, yeah. hey, was he really just drinking chocolate milk all night? <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny night, man. It was, uh, and I got Willie's blessing. Like, I wrote the song and I sent it to Willie. I said, "Hey, this this is one of those ones that came one time. I was actually just about to. We were opening for Willie at a Farm Aid show, and backstage, I just put all those thoughts down. And I thought, I said, this is gonna." go for gangbusters in front of Willie's crowd. So I did it once. And then I checked with Willie after I did it once and said, Hey, I hope it was cool. I did that. And I recorded a little version and he, he loved it. He thought it was I love that he was straight with it. That's, that's even better. Yeah. 
definitely i'm not a good poker player anyway and that's what the song's all about is like i i started off with a handicap on the game and then all of a sudden i was just like uh didn't know what was going on there was like a kitty table and there was a, a guys who knew how to play a poker table and people that was a funny part <laughs> he would just kind of in a really loving way he would just decide that you are now going to come up and play on the big boy table or it was kind of like maybe you should probably you know move back over there <laughs> and there was a lot of shuffling going on at night. and there there was a whole kind of collect uh, expat collective as well that you know where that were really there to play poker yeah one guy leaned over to me and he, and he, I can't remember who it was. He leaned over and he said, Hey, just so you know, Willie never folds. And then I was like, Oh no. Like, what does that mean? You know, like. <laughs> Willie never folds. Willie never folds. Yeah. Hey, um, I've really enjoyed this. Jack, thanks for, thanks for bringing Ben into the equation and convincing him to take part. I've loved every second of it. Yeah. Ben. It's been, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you yeah, so much. It. Nah, Ben, it's, I can't tell you, man. It's, it's, been, it's been probably 25 years since I've seen you, Ben, and yet I remain just the deepest fan. So it's, it's great to see you again. I can't wait to hear what comes. And Jack, I always love seeing you, man. You're, just, you're the best. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Zane. Just the best. Jack Johnson and Ben Harper, two people I'd speak to on or off the record any time of day. I'm glad we got one on the record. I hope you enjoy it. Add a rating, add a comment, subscribe to the interview series, and we'll catch you with another conversation very soon.